Welcome to Beckett Talks, the podcast series from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we will be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. We are joined today by our special guest, Dr James McGrath from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities. James will be speaking to us about the importance of UK Disability History Month and exploring one of its main themes of hidden impairments. Now, James, you were actually diagnosed with autism as an adult, weren't you? And I'd just like to know what was the process like for you finding out about your diagnosis, but also prior to your diagnosis as well? I wasn't formally diagnosed autistic until I was in my early 30s. Um, But certainly when I was in my teens... um, well, all all through all kinds of school, it was kind of noticeable to to myself and others that there was something different, I think, in my situation, that that had many blessings. Um, for example, the very deep fascination that I had with music, in particular the music and the stories of the Beatles. So I had these tremendous enthusiasms but I also had a, there were also areas where I really, really struggled with concentration uh, at school. It was first suggested to me when I was actually at university. It was suggested by a counsellor there that maybe I should consider looking into what was then called an Asperger's diagnosis. Now, this was 20 years ago, so there was a lot less, you know, knowledge about autism itself. One of the things that you look at as well as part of your works is that you've actually delved into the subject of autism quite deeply in terms of the work that you do, haven't you? And you've actually released a novel. Yeah. So Naming Adult Autism is uh, a critical study, but it does contain uh, autobiographical sections as well. So I, I wrote my PhD on the Beatles, on the work of Lennon and McCartney. That was when I was in my 20s. And um, so for a time, it looked like my academic work was going to be in the area of popular music studies. But I, I've, I kind of went beyond that in a way. I started to realise, well, I could use my skills in literary criticism to address the subject of autism itself. So in naming adult autism, that's that's what I did. You know, using literary critical skills to read scientific articles on autism can actually, um, that did actually highlight certain biases and certain oversights in how autism is literally defined by scientists. So I'm very passionate about the possibilities for more dialogue between the sciences and the creative subjects on autism. I don't think we could expect, I don't think we can expect to have anything near a complete view of autism if we just look at it in terms of science. I think we have to study social science, certainly, but the humanities more broadly. You know, the humanities ethos is to promote understanding between people and peoples. And that's kind of at the heart of most of my work. You mentioned there about the looking into the difference between people and peoples. One of the things that we uh, have been discussing for UK Disability History Month is the term hidden impairments. And you've got some thoughts on the definitions between hidden impairments and hidden disabilities, haven't you, James? Yes. So 
Loosely speaking, in disability studies, an impairment refers to a certain condition, maybe it's an illness, maybe it's an injury, maybe it's something more complicated than that. But an impairment is a certain condition within the body and or the mind. Impairments are, you know, what occurs within our nervous systems, within our sensory systems. Disability is how society responds or perhaps fails to respond to impairment as difference. So to give an example of that, um, anxiety can be an impairment. It can be very distressing in its own right. But if you feel like you can't talk about anxiety because there might be a stigma against mental illness, then that's an example of society kind of making the the impairment worse. So impairment and disability, uh, the self and society, those are always interacting. Off the back of that as well, one of the things that you um, have looked at as well is sort of how are autistic people viewed in the workplace and how they're made to feel? Because you mentioned yourself, um, you've had jobs before where the workplace didn't feel quite right for you as opposed to the environment you're in now. Well, in my situation, I uh, I didn't have a formal diagnosis. So at a young age, I had various different jobs and working in a bookshop was great, but I wasn't always able to do that. So there was a time when I was working for a temping agency and working in an office. And I found that really challenging. And I really think that uh, had I had a formal diagnosis and perhaps reasonable adjustments, colleagues and managers in, in that office 20 years ago would, would have been more, they, they, they would definitely have been more understanding. But as things were, you know, I was talking to someone um, this week about uh, driving lessons and, and they said, you know, they're a very practical person, but drive, the first couple of driving lessons were really, really intimidating, actually. And they found themselves almost close to tears at one point. And I thought, you know, that, that's how I felt most days when I was when I was working in a, in an office for a data collection company. The amount of times I would make these unintended errors with calculations and so on, and they would always be traced back to me. And yeah, in that situation, I struggled. And that is an example of how a formal diagnosis might actually be very beneficial to someone and beneficial to others in helping them to understand. Now, this is a difficulty for people who are autistic but are not yet diagnosed. I wonder what what it would have been like, you know, now that 20 years on, there is significantly more recognition and acceptance of autism, but there's a long way to go yet. If someone is wondering if they might be autistic and they feel like it might be impacting on their experience in a workplace. I suppose what I really wish now that I had done was just to talk to someone, not necessarily someone in that workplace, but just talk to someone because there must be better ways of experiencing things. But then again, having said all those things, why aren't certain kinds of workplace already more accommodating to people who have hidden impairments. This is immensely complex stuff, and I think most people are kind of doing their best with it. But, yeah, 20 years on, I've really struggled in that, and I do feel for people who might be in a similar situation of being not yet diagnosed autistic and yet still experiencing the the social burdens of being misunderstood. 
as you mentioned as well, you talked about it was a data collection company that you worked for. Fast yeah. forward to now, it's a very different uh, job and experience that you're getting through being a lot more creative. Do you feel that's an environment that um, you feel more comfortable with? I am every day hugely grateful for the job that I have and the work that I do. The, the job that I was just talking about, which was just a temping thing, but it was several months, actually. So, so they did actually keep taking me back on, which surprised me. But, yeah, I have a job where, not unlike when I was a student, you know, thinking, reading, talking about books, talking about ideas. These are the main things that I do. When I was in other jobs, there was no kind of outlet for that kind of expression. I didn't feel like... Uh, in a data collection company, I didn't feel like I could really use. There wasn't much space to express imagination somehow. There wasn't much space to to question anything. As a as a lecturer, certain impairments that I have, so I'm very physically quite clumsy. You know, um, crockery in my household never lasts. I'm always having to buy new plates and mugs and things because I'm always dropping things. Working, uh, when I was doing, doing voluntary work, just sorting out boxes of tins and things for, um, for a homeless shelter. You know, the number of times I'll get things wrong about where things needed to go and so on. Those kind of practical skills are not usually demanded in the same kind of way as a lecturer. So, so there are massive differences. But, but I, I have to acknowledge here that, that there is a real degree of privilege that I'm talking about. You know, not everyone, not all autistic people are fortunate enough to have a job that they find fulfilling. I need to remain aware of that and to acknowledge it properly. Whether it's media, history, English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. And you've mentioned as well about some of the themes in terms of people being diagnosed when they're adults. And yeah. one of the things that um, I was looking into when we was researching this was around the support that's in place with people that are diagnosed with autism as an adult. And, you know, the book that you brought out came out in 2017, the naming adult autism. How much yeah. do you think has changed since you were exploring a lot of those themes in the book? Something that I wrote about was, uh, something I wrote quite a lot about was how in the early 2000s, um, right, right through until the time I was writing, 2017, you would tend to get these quite uniform depictions of autism in fiction, you know, in literary fiction and in TV series and films where it will be a certain type of autism that was portrayed and there was very little uh, diversity. It was usually a white male, able-bodied maths genius. So characters like Sheldon Cooper, um, going back also to Rain Man, 
in the late 80s. Then there was the curious incident of the dog. Um, These characters all have in common savant-like abilities in maths and or science. But the, the, the problem that I have with some of those depictions is they don't really show autism in a realistic way. Autism and being able-bodied, you know, that's not a simple equation. I, I, I have various kind of sensory uh, experiences that, that, that really complicate how my body operates in, in the world, you know. Whiteness and autism. There have been very few portrayals at that point um, of, you know, a more diverse representation of of people uh maleness and autism that that was very much a recurring motif uh, i think that has gradually started to change one television text that i particularly enjoyed writing about was the bridge that is the um swedish danish detective series and ju- just in, in in having a woman an autistic woman as the main character you know that that was a kind of step forward in how autism is presented. I remember the uh, the actor who plays that character of Saga, Saga being an autistic detective. The actor doesn't, so far as I'm aware, identify as autistic herself. But uh, I remember seeing an interview where she was talking about how playing this role as an autistic person, you know, for several months during filming and so on, when filming had stopped, she found it quite altogether confusing about how to come back to the the real person she was. And I thought that was really interesting and quite poignant in a way, because for a lot of autistic people, it's the other way around. And again, this has to do with um, social expectations as a kind of social burden. If we feel like we have to mask the fact that we are autistic, that can be very, very draining. It, It took me a long time to realise and to not be upset by the realisation that just because a certain subject is very, very important to me, it doesn't automatically mean it's going to be important to someone else. So, you know, when I was a, a child, I didn't really talk much very... I didn't really talk much at all. I was always listening, though. I was always thinking. My mind was always very active. But when I did talk, it was usually to talk to people about the Beatles. Now, some people just aren't interested in in the Beatles, and I, I, I um, it's painful to think I must have bored people a bit. That's a sad thought, but it's the kind of thought you are confronted with when you read about the definitions of autism and thought and think, uh, oh, I do that. So then, starting to think, well, I won't talk so much about my enthusiasms you know that that's considered socially abnormal as they put it in uh, autistic diagnostic literature that's socially abnormal so I'll, i'll stop doing that but that idea of almost policing my own speech for one thing it's very very draining so you know i i could quite easily uh spontaneously talk about the month of February 1967 and what was going on in the Beatles' work and so on. And I started to realise, oh, maybe I won't be so specific on dates. Maybe I'll say, instead of saying, yeah, in February 1967, if I say, yeah, towards the late 60s or something like that. And I would find myself deliberately sounding vague 
and thinking, okay, I think I'm mimicking the more the kind of casual, more general way of conversation that is expected in society, but something has been lost in the process. My solution to that was to write about the Beatles. In writing, we have so much more freedom than we do in everyday speech, and in reading too. So yeah, that, all, all, all that kind of knowledge and enthusiasm, I put it into writing rather than into conversation, and it was quite fulfilling to do that. At what point was it when you started to look into poetry? Uh, poetry has always been a very important part of my life. A, a key memory that I have there is um, when I was eight years old, there was a TV documentary about the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper and the year 1967, I'm coming back to that. And on this documentary that I asked my parents to record for me, because it was on late at night, and I remember uh, in these clips of cultural events from 1967, it kind of seeped into a poem. It wasn't introduced or anything, it was just suddenly, here is a man reading a poem. That poet, the poet was Adrian Mitchell, and the poem was called Tell Me Lies About Vietnam. And he just had this black and white film of a man reciting this poem against the war in Vietnam. As an eight-year-old English-Irish child in the 1980s, I, I didn't really know about the Vietnam War, you know. But there was something in the passion of how Adrian Mitchell was just saying these words that gave me a visceral, physical response. It was like my pulse started going faster. and I, Yeah, that kind of sensation you get all over your body when you, when you feel a sense of awe. Like I say, I didn't fully understand the words he was saying. He could have almost been speaking in another language, but a bit like music itself, it really touched me physically and emotionally. And I'd never known a poem to do that before. I kind of liked poems that we'd read at school and things, but it never had that impact before. You mentioned about that sensation about, you know, just reading something and that is different when you experience in, in words actually on paper. One of the things that I was really interested to find out when we had a brief chat before was how you dealt with the pandemic and lockdowns, because for a lot of people, it was all about how many different TV series could you binge on Netflix what would yeah. you watch on television? For yourself, you, you really got stuck into your novels, didn't you, during the lockdown? Yeah, reading. Now, I, I find reading better suits my concentration, partly because we can read at our own pace, whereas with a film or a TV series, OK, we can actually slow them down or speed them up, but, but even so, it, the, the, the natural set pace of um, TV and film has always been a bit of a challenge to my concentration. I did nonetheless write in great depth and detail about two or three television series and films in the book, and I really immersed myself in them. But for leisure, somehow reading just suits my neurology better. And the other thing is, with, uh, with screen texts, and I still keep finding this, I really struggle to tell the actors apart. Uh, that has to do with, it's called prosopognosia, more widely known as face blindness. It's something that does affect quite a lot of autistic people, not, not all of us, but it does affect me, where um, 
yeah, just struggling to tell one person's face from another. If I'm in a new environment, so I'm going to a university conference or something, you know, I'll be in the kind of coffee break or something and I'll I'll go and introduce myself to someone because I'm, you know, not as shy as I used to be in things. Oh, I just introduced myself to you a minute ago, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah, so face blindness. Now, wonderfully... I have found that since we returned to teaching in person, being around students, I can usually, it's, it's not usually a problem. That, that, and, and I'm surprised about that. I'm very pleased about it. It's not usually a problem, but sometimes halfway through a seminar, having known everyone's name and things up to a certain point, I start to say, okay, I'm losing, I'm slightly losing my ability to, focus on faces at at the moment. Let's have a short break. But to go back to your original question, films and TV, yeah, I tend to get the actors and therefore the characters confused for some reason. I can overcome that, but it involves a lot of effort. What's it been like to sort of bring it back to your role here? You mentioned that it's fine when you have a class full of students and then eventually the first blindness kicks in. Obviously, for a lot of people, stuff like Microsoft Teams, Skype for Business, Zoom has had to be influential and key to the work that people do. What's yeah. it been like in that sort of environment for you, James, where you're having to interact with people on a screen? Well, uh, on Teams and similar programmes, you can see people's names. So so that, that side of face blindness wasn't really an issue. In fact, I was wondering at one point if that was almost going to condition me to expect to see someone's name so that when, when we got back out into the world, I'd be used to seeing someone's name just underneath their face. When I've been teaching all day and when I've been around colleagues and staff, and I always really enjoy being in the workplace, um, in the university, when I am walking back home, you know, I might, I might see a neighbour who, who I, I know a bit, but not very well. And, and when that happens, I might be thinking, OK, uh, we're meeting on this particular road. So you're probably a neighbour. But do you or do you work in WH Smith or, or, or something? It's not usually a major problem for me now that I can articulate it. Um, so, yeah, I teach modules on writing and reading autobiography. That's the life writing third year module. And something that I'm keen to emphasize to students is, that, you know, how it's empowering to be able to tell our own stories. It's like um, if something embarrassing happens to us, you know, we walk it into work and we fall over backwards into a puddle or something. That's a kind of unpleasant experience and it might also be quite kind of embarrassing and things. Now, I might get up out of the puddle thinking, oh no, what if someone I knew saw that happen or whatever? What if then someone comes in and says, oh, you'll never guess what I just saw happen to James and things. Now that, the thing is, if you, if you tell the story, you can present it in your own words, just just like a stand-up comedian would do. And that gives you a certain power. Writing can enable us to kind of shift from being uh, the victim of misfortune to being a storyteller. So in that sense, writing can be very empowering. And that th- there's a parallel there in how I approached 
uh, naming adult autism, where I would, in the autobiographical sequences, I would write about things that had made me uncomfortable, social errors that I've made at certain times and so on. One of the things that obviously we're here to discuss today is UK Disability History Month. And, yes. you know, we mentioned that the theme of that is hidden impairments. What impact do you think that awareness initiatives such as UK Disability History Month, Autism Awareness Week, what do you think they have in celebrating those that, you know, live with disabilities, but also challenging society's views on hidden impairments? It, it, it's, it's very important that we do have these, uh, these occasions to celebrate and to recognise and to give kind of media space to and cultural space to, uh, in, in, in this example, disabled people, hidden disabilities, autism. I, I'm always glad to be asked to write something or to do a podcast when we get to, you know, uh, UK Disability History Month. Uh, you know, I'm very, very grateful to the university for giving staff and students these opportunities during Disability History Month. Increasingly, I feel like there is more attention and space being given to people who are themselves autistic or are themselves disabled to talk about these situations um, during these months. Ideally, of course, we wouldn't need such awareness weeks or awareness months. We'd be kind of aware and accepting of it all the time, but... You know, this is a political push, isn't it, to, to help to spread awareness, to help to educate people. It's empowering. Uh, you know, when it works well, it's empowering to disabled people, but it can also be empowering to non-disabled people because they're learning something. One of the things that I know you've been keen to share, and uh, I won't take up too much more of your time on this, um, I know that you've been really keen to share a poem that you've actually written. Yes, the work of Lucian Freud felt like it changed how I saw things, which I suppose is, you know, what that's what a painter wants to do, isn't it? Change how the person sees the world. So so I, I have written a poem about Lucian Freud. OK, so this is the poem. Biography, Lucian Freud. Soon after witnessing Lucian's gifts round Italian galleries, Billy notices new faces in auras. Billy draws it all in, twins adrift, eggs on tables, old scarf ties, blue cobalt saucers. All tall West London saw as Lucian got beautiful near winter's wages, worries. But Lucian stood greatest on a fading rectangular card off a councillor's landing wall, Standing nude but for dust alongside dogs, East End gardens, old cities. As decades waited, Lucian betted and sold, outlasting wine and benefits. Billy didn't need Grandad Freud, but Lucian, to get to feel faces. James, thank you for sharing your poem and your inspirational story with us. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you also for listening to the latest podcast. Stay tuned next week for a new edition of Beckett Talks. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. 
So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.